Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, bringing you the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive startups and leaders. Subscribers get a new episode every Thursday at 6pm, and I'm your host, James Somerville. Hey everybody, this week we are talking about skin cancer, and we're also talking about artificial intelligence too. And we're particularly talking about the 13 million people that go to see a physician for skin cancer because actually almost all of them do not get a skin cancer diagnosis. So as you can imagine, that puts a huge amount of pressure on health systems. And so particularly the question that we're asking today is can AI diagnose skin cancer as well as a dermatologist can, i.e. a skincare specialist? And actually, the answer is yes, and it was proved this month by my guest this week, who is Neil Daly from Skin Analytics. And that's a UK-based health tech company, and their Derm product was recently featured in JAMA, which is the Journal of the American Medical Association. So for clinicians and scientists listening, you'll know that that's quite a reputable journal with a huge impact factor and considered to be one of the best journals in the world for medicine. And Skin Analytics and Derm were in there, because of their ability to catch melanomas, a really aggressive type of skin cancer, as sensitively and as specifically as a dermatology specialist. So Neil started the company back in 2012. He worked extensively in mobile innovation, actually, telecommunications, strategy consulting for a number of years. He's got a BSc in physics. He's got an MBA from London Business School. And on this week's episode, you're going to hear all about how he started the company. You're going to hear about the business model. You're going to hear about their partnerships all across the health tech space. You're going to hear about that study and just why that study is so important. And you're going to hear just what makes this company so special. Enjoy the episode, guys. So Neil, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? Very well, James. Thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome, mate. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Neil? I am speaking from home today. I realized that the office was a bit loud to be doing this. <laughs> yeah, we actually tried to do this yesterday, didn't we? And it was just far too loud in the office. <laughs> much, was, much uh... quieter, mate. Ideal. Um, <laughs> cool, man. So obviously we know each other pretty well and you know we're helping you out with a few bits and bobs. So for the benefit of our listeners, mate, why don't you tell us uh, all about you, the company and your story? Right. That's a, uh, that's a big brief, but, uh, yeah, it's a big brief. Do... I'm going to, I'm going to jump in and sort of prod you along the way, but <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a, yeah, it's an open question to start with. Let's put it that way. Sure. So yeah, just for context, um, I set up and run skin analytics, which focuses on using artificial intelligence to diagnose skin cancer. I've been doing that for about eight years. Uh, but if we sort of rewind all the way back to how I got into it, uh, it's a bit of a convoluted story. If I'm honest, I, um, I was originally in consulting with Accenture for about three or four years uh, and doing a whole range of different things in the technology world uh, before moving into strategy consulting, which I really, really enjoyed sort of trying to look at the top line problems and understand what the the levers were that were driving, uh, you know, these big sort of problems that companies faced and then trying to unpick uh, solutions that could overcome those problems while creating advantages for the companies that we work with. However, uh, the more I did of that, the more I realized I felt a little bit removed from the actual doing 
of uh, of this work. It felt almost like at times you'd write up uh, this really good strategy of what could be done, and it sort of went onto the shelf because there were competing priorities or lots of noise within the business that uh, that you did the work for, and you never really, or I never really, got the satisfaction of seeing seeing what uh, we sort of thought up or or uh, created mm. come to life very often. And uh, it it took me out of uh, the the consulting world in the end. I thought, well, I, I need to get a little bit closer to the action, and I ended up going to a company uh, that's called the GSMA. Uh, and if you work in the telecommunications industry, you'll, you'll know it. If you don't, you'll never have heard of it. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, effectively, uh, the, uh, it's effectively the visa of, uh, of telecommunications. It's a, a trade body. And they have a whole range of things that they do. But the area that I worked was in the commercial side of things where the trade association was trying to help operators think through mobile operators think through how they could uh, create different lines of business that wasn't just selling voice minutes and data. And it was around about the time that the iPhone came out. And so it was fascinating. Operators had this uh, huge, huge ecosystem uh, with unparalleled amounts of data about their, their customers. Uh, but they all had, you know, three or four major players in each market. And so the, the information was a bit fragmented and, and what I spent a lot of my time trying to do initially was, was figure out how do we get all the operators to play together to create these, these unique products that only they could, things like ad platforms or a variety of these sorts of things. And that then I ended, up, yeah. Yeah, I ended up working in, in mobile financial services or mobile money as we called it. And I created the world's first international remittance hub with, uh, with Western Union. And what we effectively did was allow people to send from their mobile across the Western Union network and terminate the, the transfer onto another mobile, uh, which was particularly interesting for, for the emerging markets. A lot, of, uh, a lot of people sending money back into African nations. Uh, there was the ability to, for it to end up on a mobile payment system within, within those nations. Kenya is wow. a, a classic example. So I didn't know that. You created the world's first. That's incredible. Yeah, that's right. And the second, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. we, uh, Just improvement upon the first idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we wanted to try and create a bit of uh, a competition and, and all those sorts of things. Um, yeah. But it was, yeah, it was a really fascinating, fascinating time to be involved. And uh, I, it was kind of my first foray into innovation. And, uh, and what I saw was just fantastic amazing work being done on the ground in, in predominantly the African countries, but also Latin America and, and Asia, um, applying these sort of principles of mobile financial services into their markets and learning these really, really interesting things along the way. I was going to say, like, your mindset must have then completely changed because all, the, all your style of working and the style that you, your brain was working, because it sounds like in strategy consulting, you're obviously, you're thinking of the sort of what ifs, but then all of a sudden it was like, well, here's a thing that you're going to build and here's all the things it's going to create. So go, go not, not only analyze that, but actually go and do it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is really cool because if you like, the setting up of the, the remittance hub was very much a strategic bit of work, pulling together different players, getting the regulatory landscape, trying to help sort that out. And, and I worked with a great group of people who were doing that. But then the application of that into the market was moving away from strategy and a lot more into the operational side of things. Yeah. And that's the part that was the most fascinating to me because you, you just learned such incredibly rich things that you weren't learning from, from you know, just thinking about something from 40,000 foot. And it was a real turning point for me. Uh, I worked there for about four or five years. Um, and uh, at the same time, the last couple of years, I was doing a, an executive MBA at London Business School. And that was really sort of pushing me to, to examine myself and, and try and think through uh, what it was that I wanted out of my career and what I, what I enjoyed and what I didn't enjoy. 
And up until that point, I think I just associated myself with uh, being a strategy consultant because, uh, you know, in my head, they had relatively high level of prestige. They had great salaries. You know, the, the career prospect looked quite good. They're all very smart people. And I thought that's what I wanted to be. Uh, and then over the course of that, that, uh, that job and going through the, the program at London Business School, I kind of realized what I really like doing is just getting together complex problems where there's lots of different stakeholders and trying to tie them all together for a new way of doing things or a new solution. And that works very well in the health, uh, oh, sorry, in the financial services sector, but it was a huge opportunity. In the <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's plenty of those problems to solve in healthcare. <laughs> there's definitely no sure shortage. Absolutely. And, and I, got, uh, I did a project with Johnson & Johnson briefly, and I just got bitten by the bug of healthcare. The fact that you have so many different parties uh, or stakeholders, if you like, who have such different perspectives, you know, uh, I know you're a clinician and, and uh, I can only imagine what it would be like to be a clinician, but you've got the patient in front of you. And I guess you're trying to find the best possible outcome you can for every single person that you see. And that's a very different perspective than the public health body who says, I've got a fixed amount of money to spend on my population health. How do I get the best possible outcome for that amount of money? Um, and they sound like the same thing, but they're just not. Yeah. And, you know, that, then you've got regulators and you've got funders, the payers, and it's just a, a hugely complex system. And the more complex, the more uh, exciting I think there, uh, it is to work with them. Mm, you're a rare breed, I think. The more complex, the more exciting. I mean, that, I think that might a- apply to most people. But then I think as, as you go through, I mean, you'll know this, as you go through healthcare and then all of a sudden the problem just starts to look bigger and bigger and bigger, that kind of enthusiasm tends to just fall off a cliff at some point. Yeah. But you're not, yeah. quite, you're not quite there, are you? Not yet, but I, I, I acknowledge I was hugely naive. And I, <laughs> I often wonder if, uh, if I hadn't been so naive, if I would have still pressed ahead. You know, a lot of people come on this podcast and say it as founders. Um, I think Justin from Healthy said that the other day. Uh, what did you do for J&J out of interest? So at the time, Johnson & Johnson was looking at, uh, with us, uh, looking at how you could put SIM cards into diabetic um, blood glucose monitors so that you could start SIM to cards, interesting. Yeah, well, if you could then capture all the data that was was captured from that device and put it up into the clouds, you could start doing sort of predictive analytics and say, you know, look, you know, in this circumstance before this thing happened, this is how we can avoid it and organize sort of interventions. Uh, You know, I don't think um, I was only briefly on the project and and, um, certainly with the GSMA, I don't think it got too much further than, than the part that I was involved in. But it was it for me, it was the first sort of insight to go, wow, there's there's actually so much scope in the healthcare system to to do really cool things with technologies mm. that are emerging and you know at the time back back in uh, you know what was that 2008 2009 uh, uh, you know healthcare uh, sorry mobile technology was the technology that was emerging that was fascinating um, mm-hmm. and you know now that's artificial intelligence but uh, we're building on on these new technologies that are coming through and we're unlocking more and more potential within the healthcare system i think Nice. And before I then move on to skin analytics and how you got the idea and, and those early days, I've just got a quick question about MBAs. So you obviously did an MBA at LBS, a London Business School, so one of the top schools in the world. I hear so, I hear so many conflicting things about whether MBAs are worth it. You know, if, you, if you're on the sort of 
I don't know, the, the, the Gary Vaynerchuk vibe of, of just get out there and do something. Don't worry about qualifications or MBAs or anything like that. If you're an entrepreneur, you're just going to do it sort of thing. And then on the other hand, you know, I speak to, I don't know, Darius, who's now at Butterfly, who did an MBA at Harvard, for example, and is you know, raised $250 million for what, at a 1.25 billion valuation and actually thinks his MBA is really useful. So where do you sit on that? on that kind of spectrum as to how useful MBAs are when you're that, when you're actually got an eye on kind of entrepreneurship as the end goal? Yeah, it's a really good question because a lot of these programs around the world now focus on entrepreneurship as one of their sort of key areas that they aim to teach people about. Mm. I mean, I guess I'd, I'd start by saying, you know, I chose to do the MBA as a symptom of not really being happy with where my career was going rather than interesting. Okay. Doing it for any particular set of, I want to do this. Um, set of reasons. It's actually the same same reason that I studied physics and maths in undergrad, partly uh, because people told me I couldn't do it because my grades up at that <laughs> point hadn't been particularly nice. good. And then partly because, you know, I was just really interested in all the things that I didn't know about, um, you know, in physics and, and in business uh, that I could sort of get a bit of exposure to. But I'm not a great student, if I'm honest with you. So mm. I found, uh, I found the, the program to be mostly good for my confidence uh, as a you know as someone in business uh, not really knowing what i didn't know i kind of just assumed that all the people around me really understood something that i didn't and and uh, had a really good grip on whatever it be you know marketing or or accounting or you know whatever area i hadn't had any experience in and just thinking that they had some sort of inside knowledge that i didn't mm. i think the best part of the mba from my perspective was um that I kind of got exposure to all those different things and realized that there's no secret sauce. It's all just common sense. And that if you do just get your hands in there and, and uh, get going, you'll figure it out as you go along. And, mm. you know, so whether or not I think it's a good thing to do is, is more down to the person, you know, do you need that sort of confidence boost as I did um, something to sort of push you off the edge or are you quite happy just to muck in and, and figure it out as you go along? And that's, that's just going to be a personal choice. I would say that the I did a course at uh, LBS. It was actually a, an elective. Uh, it was a summer school run by a professor called John Mullins, who's written a couple of books um, uh, around the sort of whole um, uh, lean startup kind of theory. Uh, he was yeah. one of the early researchers around that. And he, his course was fantastic because what he, what he actually did was say, okay, all the stuff you learned in the MBA, amazingly, you've got this really big toolkit of things that you can look at and use to analyze businesses. But in entrepreneurship, you actually need a different set of skills. You need the skills to, one, have a huge amount of resilience because things are just not going to go your way. And you're going to have to pick yourself up and make amendments and changes to the way you do things and just try and figure it out on the fly. And the second thing you need to do is, is to just to get stuck into things. So I think on the first class, they made us, um, they made us go start cold calling people. And I actually <laughs> come to that with the idea of, of Skinalytics. And, and I was just thinking it through with a friend of mine, whether mm. or not it could become a business. And we ended up cold calling an MP who was involved in the melanoma task force. And I just never would have done that if I hadn't been sort of forced to do it. And then I, we ended nice. up getting through and then we got invited to be part of the task force's observers. And we just learned a huge amount from Brilliant. picking up the phone and it's just not a skill you, you typically learn so it was good for us and good for me in in that respect i guess you then founded skin analytics after that right so 
tell me kind of the the early days of it having the idea and turning that idea into the first forms of reality what what did you sort of do to essentially get it from an, a, a nothing to to something yeah well unsurprisingly given my background the first the first sort of assessment or analysis i did was very much from the strategic top line and mm. i was thinking through you know, how many people have this disease um, and how many people are uh, incurring costs to the healthcare system or seeking help for this disease and looked at this very large number of people who are worried or were, you know, seeing GPs about skin cancer and looked at a relatively small number of people who end up uh, having the disease and then, and then dying from the disease and thought that there was, there was some huge inefficiencies on the way that we went about finding the disease. So that, that kind of gave me the confidence that there was, there was an opportunity here to to make a bit of a difference to the sort of pathway from worried to, to diagnosed and then on to treatment. Uh, and I, you know, with my maths and physics background, I had been reading a bit about uh, artificial intelligence. It wasn't called that back then. I think uh, we, we referred to it as machine learning or computer vision. And uh, I, I started to think, well, if we could standardize um, the way that people assess skin lesions, maybe we could try and take some of the pressure off the healthcare system, that initial assessment. And that idea seemed to, to stand up. And so I, um, I went out and approached uh, a friend of mine and I, uh, who was helping me with the, the part of the business in the beginning. Uh, we went out and spoke to a number of uh, professors of medicine up in Cambridge, where we had some contacts and, and also uh, in London. And then we also spoke to a bunch of computer scientists, um, professors at, uh, at these various universities. And the vast majority of them sort of didn't really want to have uh, uh, much interest in anything we we're saying that the doctors were sort of you know this is ridiculous technology shouldn't or couldn't really play this role and then the um the, the computer science professors were kind of ha, well you know you're, you're a bit ahead of the game it's it's not there yet the technology until we finally met a professor uh, who's unfortunately passed away since but bill fitzgerald uh, up in cambridge who was um a professor of computer science and he just took one look at what we we're doing and said, you know, this looks really, really exciting. I reckon we can probably find a way to get this done. Um, I'll help you out. And that was a real turning point for us because we started to get a bit of um, one expertise, but also credibility to, to uh, then go to the next person and say, well, look, you know, we're doing this and we're thinking about this in this way. Um, what do you think? And people are a lot more receptive the minute you have, uh, have a bit more credibility. So we eventually found some doctors up in Cambridge who also said, yeah, look, the really big problem with skin cancer is, is what happens at primary care and, and how do we try and improve primary care? And it's a lot more complex than it looks. And that helped us really sort of develop our proposition. But at that stage, it was still just a bunch of thoughts and, and words on paper and, and slide decks and all those sorts of things. It was really, really nascent. And it wasn't clear in my mind that I was going to dedicate, I didn't think it was going to be this many years, but, you know, the next eight to 10 years of my life, uh, to, to that as a project. And so what, uh, what we decided to do was say, if we can find the funds for this, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to um, focus and just dedicate myself entirely to this. But the first thing I want to do is just make sure that someone else believes in this rather than just me, uh, uh, you know, getting carried away with an idea that I really like. And uh, we were incredibly fortunate there because we, put in an application for the Innovate UK funding, um, which was just a bunch of research that we did and a bunch of ideas that we had, and it was nothing more than that. And we applied for one of those smart grants, which I think is set up to do exactly that, take these ideas and, and make them happen. 
And I still, you know, we, we didn't hear anything obviously for about six weeks to eight months. And I still remember the moment that we found out that uh, we'd gotten this smart grant and that, uh, that the business was going to happen. It was, a, it was about four or five bottles of champagne that followed. Oh, afterwards. wow. It was a really, How much was really the funding moment. at the time? Was that phase one stuff? Yeah, it was, we, we'd, uh, we'd gone straight for the second, uh, second level, which was £100,000 co-funded. Mm. So we had to find £60,000 to unlock £100,000. And, um, and again, with the credibility of the grant, that was, that was relatively straightforward. We managed to find some really great investors who believed in what we do. We're mm. still involved in the company now. And, uh, and away we went. It's a good story. And I like the fact that you started with this kind of in-depth I'm going to call it a market analysis, but it's, it's essentially just being really sensible about whether this is a good idea or not. Just asking really basic questions like how many people get skin cancer, you know, who looks at it, what's the process and, and just actually, I, I say this all the time, right? But immersing yourself within the problem to see whether it is a goer. But my question here is around that process that you were going through and actually hearing a lot of this is ridiculous, this won't work, computers shouldn't be playing this role until you eventually did find the people that, that did believe it. I mean, one of, my, one of the things that I tend to say in, in some of the presentations that I give is by all means, listen to feedback, but don't listen to all of it. <laughs> but at the same time, it sounds like the majority of your feedback was not even inquisitive. It was more just like, yeah, but nah, this is not, <laughs> this is not good. This is not going to work and all these different things. But what, what was going through your mind when you were getting that sort of feedback and, and what was sort of driving you to eventually find those people that did believe in it? It's um, it's a it's a really great question. It's funny that you say that you have the in your talks that you give you have that listen to feedback but don't listen to feedback. Mm. I I have a similar set of slides which I think is the, the the knife edge that innovators have to walk on, which is you just absolutely have to listen to the people who know better than you. you absolutely <laughs> yeah. have to not listen to the people who know better than you because you know, <laughs> they're just going to tell you what, what what the world looks like right now. So it's it's really it's a really difficult one. I think. I think for me and um, what I would suggest is really important is to, to really listen to the nuance of what you're being told. So what we were getting back with the clinicians is it wasn't that the idea wasn't good and that it wasn't needed. It was that they weren't comfortable with the idea of the technology playing that role and they weren't comfortable that it, the technology could play that role. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't quite what we were asking. We we're asking if a technology could do this, would this be a good thing? Mm. Uh, and in some respects, that, that, that question was answered by the way that they answered the other questions, but we could see that there was going to be a challenge in, in convincing clinicians to, to trust it. Luckily, there's a tried and tested path for that. It's called you know, clinical evidence and, and building enough of it to, to build trust. But um, it, it's sort of trying to read between the lines and un, unpick why someone might be saying what your, your idea won't work or isn't good. Uh, and then trying to really be honest with yourself about, am I disagreeing with them just because it's my idea and I really want to hang on to it? You know, is my Facebook for dogs really a good idea? Or, mm. you know, because everyone tells me it's not, it's, it's actually not. That humility is so important. You know, when you were talking then, I, I just, I've just written down the word assumptions that clinicians know everything as well. You know, you've got, you've got to find, you know, for the entrepreneurs out there that have got ideas that are testing them or the future entrepreneurs that, that, are, that are in that process, you've got to remember that at the end of the day, a clinician, one clinician, whatever your sample size is, there's, there's no, 
there's no, you, you can't assume, this is what I'm trying to say, you, you, you can't assume that they know the answer to the question that you're asking them. Because actually, if you're trying to test the idea of whether this is a good business or not, it actually, there's far more to take under consideration than just the clinical. Similarly, when you're asking the computer scientist, there's far more to consider than actually just the science. And so when you, when you test ideas with people, you've got to make sure that you're actually asking them exactly the right question that you think they can answer in exactly the way that you've just said, right? So if you're wrapping up the kind of existential crisis of, is a computer going to take my job? by asking a dermatologist do you think computer vision or or ai whatever you want to call it for dermatology is a good idea of course they're going to wrap the emotional into the logical and and try and and say the idea isn't right but i mean if you can hone the questions down so that you're actually getting the right data back you can then figure out whether it's a good business and i think you know with these things even when people ask me about whether things are good business or not i tend to say to them increasingly I don't know, but here's the people that you need to ask and here's the things that you need to ask. It's not for me to say whether this is a good idea or not because at the end of the day, for a lot of different things, I need to test the credibility of the science. I need to test the credibility of the tech or the medicine or whatever it is. And so I completely understand that that yeah, you, you cannot wrap the emotional into the logical when you're t- talking to clinicians because technology is such a contentious issue. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the challenges in healthcare is that when you're trained as a clinician, uh, you're trained to give people bad news and to give them and deal with difficult situations. And part of that training, um, certainly for, for my friends back in Australia who went through it, part of that training is to, to come across with a lot of confidence um, in situations where you may not necessarily feel as confident as you need to Such project yourself and, and for innovators you know, or entrepreneurs, you're talking to these clinicians and everything that they say, they say with that, that um, gravitas and that confidence, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're exactly right. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and We're trained to find problems in things as well. That's, that's <laughs> what the, the MO of the, of, of the job is, right? You're literally trained to, to, to find problems in things, especially patient histories. You know, when a patient is telling you a story, you're trying to figure out all these different things within it that, that could be pointing to things that are wrong. And so, yeah, when, when you look for problems in things all day, when people pitch to you, you tend to do the same thing. And it's, it's a difficult mindset when you switch to kind of innovation entrepreneurship to then to, to have the default as yes rather than no is quite interesting. Yeah, but but also, you know, is that, you know, obviously it's your role given the, the choices you've made about where your career goes, but is that the role of the clinicians that you're talking to? I'm not sure it is. I think you want the clinicians to to, to focus on what they've been trained to do and, and try and identify those challenges and those issues. Mm. And, you know, I think it's the job of the, the entrepreneurs to think about, well, who is it that I need to be speaking to? Because yes, you know, for me, I need to go speak to all the dermatologists, but I also need to speak to the GPs because they're dealing with this on the front line. But as importantly, I need to be speaking to the people who are thinking about this from a public health perspective, because they've got a very different view again, as we sort of talked about. And I think we were really lucky. I was really lucky in that the clinicians that we work with up in Cambridge, they were research clinicians who were focused on on the problem and the challenges of skin cancer. And they took a very um, sort of public health view of things, which meant that we learned a huge amount that was not so much what does a GP do when someone's sitting in front of you, but it was also what's the pathway. Where are the delays in the pathway? Um, you know, where are the problems in, in the, the, the way that patients flow through the system? And I don't think you'd get that if you were just speaking to, to um, a GP who would probably be putting themselves in the context of, I've got a patient in front mm. of me, what happens? Uh, so it's very interesting. So describe to me the problem that you're solving and then describe the product to me and why it solves that problem. 
Sure. So when I look at skin cancer, there are two clear problems that we're trying to address. The first one is that the survival rate for the disease is about 97, 98% for people that you can catch the disease in stage one, like many other cancers. Um, but it drops down to less than 10% by the time that the cancer spreads and becomes a, a stage four a melanoma. Melanoma is a particularly aggressive cancer, and, and when it starts to spread, it does it very quickly. And unlike other cancers, all the information you need to make a decision or to, to identify and to do something about it is visible on the surface of the skin in the vast majority of cases. And so there's a real opportunity to, to try and identify the disease in its earlier stages. And if we can do that, we can dramatically improve the survival rates. Incidentally, you can also dramatically reduce the cost of, skin, of melanoma as a, as a disease. So that's our long-term objective. That's what we're aiming to, to be able to find the disease early. That's actually not a simple problem, um, as, as you'd know. Mm-hmm. You know, screening is hugely contentious and the economics of it often don't add up. So we've got a long road ahead of us to, to unpick that, but that's very much where we're aiming. In the meantime, the second problem is much more tactical and much more where we're focused on in the short term. And that's simply that there are a lot of people who are worried about skin cancer, and it's very difficult to be an expert in it uh, as a person in the general population. A lot of those people end up going to the GP, roughly 13 million people a year in the UK, those people are all seen by a GP who's also not necessarily an expert in skin, uh, especially skin cancer. It's quite a complex area. And that generates roughly a million specialist appointments each year in hospitals to find around 15,000 melanoma. So you can see that there's very Whoa. large numbers going into a very small number. And that's our focus for the time being. How do we, how do we uh, uh, reduce that flow from primary care to secondary care in the first instance? Uh, which has two benefits. One, you give more time to the clinicians to focus on those problems, but also every single trust in the country is struggling to hit the two-week wait cancer targets. And with a new 28-day cancer target, it's going to be even more challenging. So we are, um, we are sort of focusing on trying to reduce that flow and then helping take the pressure off the healthcare system as well as some of the cost out. So talk me through the product itself. Yeah, so that's a, that's a lofty ambition. I think one of the, the great things about our product is it's, it's actually a very simple, simple one to understand. It's hugely complex to, to build and to run, but the, the, the application of it is quite simple. So effectively what we're doing or what we have been doing since 2012 is building uh, the latest artificial intelligence models and training a system to be able to look at a dermoscopic image of a skin lesion, uh, an image that can be captured by a GP or a nurse in a GP practice, and is able to identify one of 12 different lesion types as accurately as a dermatologist would with a patient in front of them in the hospital. So effectively, what we're trying to do is we're using the artificial intelligence to automatically assess these images as a dermatologist would, and we're moving that out of the hospital where it happens right now with dermatologists that take 15 years to train, and we're putting it into the GP surgery uh, in a way that is very, very scalable. Nice. I'm just still ruminating on those numbers, you know. So a million referrals to find 15,000 episodes. Yeah, yeah. A million referrals and around 300,000 biopsies. I mean, this data is very That's hard cool. to get, uh, get to accurately from, from our perspective. We've been sort of triangulating it from a number of different sources, but the numbers are, are pretty large here in the UK. And then when you start to look at markets like the US and Australia uh, and the rest of Europe, the, the numbers become staggering. 
And so what you're trying to do then is you're, you're essentially trying to equip primary care as a specialty with tools that will allow them to, well, first of all, make sure they find those 15,000 episodes, but, but sort of very, well, very close as important, actually not referring the other 985,000 episodes and confidently being able to send those people away or indeed the 700,000 that don't need to be biopsied even just sending those away confidently. Absolutely. And, you know, I think we've been mostly talking about melanoma skin cancer for, for good reason. It's the, the aggressive one and, and it's behind most of the deaths associated with skin cancer. But there's a, a range of non-melanoma skin cancers and precancerous lesions that should be treated differently from primary care. So, mm. um, you know, for those who are familiar with the healthcare system, um, if it's a melanoma or a squamous cell carcinoma, they should be referred under, under the two-week wait rule so that they should be in a hospital and assessed within two weeks. But um, basal cell carcinomas, which are by far the most common cancer in the world, by far, um, they are not urgent, they're not fast growing, and they should be referred down the routine referral pathway. And just even distinguishing the difference between the two-week wait referrals and the non-urgent referrals has huge amount of value. Um, and for, for that reason, um, we think that there's a huge opportunity to focus on those other uh, lesion types as well. And I'll give you another example. There's, um, there's something called an AK, an acnetic teratosis, excuse me yep. for butchering it. Uh, <laughs> and it's actually a precancerous lesion. So it's going to become a squamous cell carcinoma, uh, which is an urgent referral, but isn't yet. Um, and you can treat it with a topical cream. Uh, which a GP can prescribe, but the GP has to be able to identify that it is a, an AK. And there's roughly a thousand AKs for every um, SEC that gets found. So the numbers are staggeringly large. And just being able to identify those for the GP and say, look, the first thing to try is this topical cream and see that it solves the problem um, is, is, is powerful in its own right. So talk to me about where this is being used, be that pilots or be that contracts, be that studies. What, what have you got going on at the moment where this technology is being used? And just sort of talk about what that looks like for those health systems. Yeah, so the artificial intelligence itself uh, is just at the end of a very rigorous set of clinical evaluations that we've been running um, of the first round of clinical evaluations that we've been running. So we uh, published an observational paper uh, which looked at sort of historical data that had been already collected and assessed uh, against those 12 lesion types to tell us how good we were at spotting those different lesions with very, very strong results. Uh, but probably most interestingly, just uh, a week or two ago, we published the, the first prospective clinical study uh, that was looking at um, uh, how an AI system would work. And what I mean by perspective, uh, for those who aren't sure, it's about collecting the data from patients who are really showing up in the hospital there and then having treatment. And we compared how the AI would have made a decision to the decision that a dermatologist would make with a patient in front of them and the full medical history. And we used the, the biopsy results of any uh, biopsy that is done as the ground truth to test who uh, or how well each, each one did. And what we're able to show in that is that the artificial intelligence performed as well as the dermatologist. And it really, um, it really gave us a lot of, uh, I guess, the evidence that we've been needing to show to clinicians to prove to them that this technology is now ready to be deployed. So that, that just uh, finished and published. And so right now we're in conversation with uh, about three or four different trusts and a number of different CCGs about how to take that technology and then put it into the patient pathway to try and reduce those onward referrals. 
what I would say is, is that um, while we were doing that, uh, while we were validating the technology, going through the medical device regulations, doing a huge amount of preparatory work that is just essential in healthcare, we didn't want to sit on our hands. And so we launched very much the same service we were talking about uh, just a second ago, where GPs are able to take images of skin lesions and, and get advice about what to do. But we launched it with a panel of consultant dermatologists who report for us across the country. Uh, and why we did that was to, to help show uh, um, our future investors and help show our current investors that the demand for these types of services is quite high. Um, we helped sort of answer a bunch of assumptions about what the market's willing to pay for that sort of level of assessment and that reduction in onward costs. And we uh, learned a huge amount about how to sort of operate and, and run a service like that. So we've got four commercial partners uh, running teledermatology services with, as we refer to it as our analog version, where we have dermatologists make the decision. Mm. And that's uh, two in the private sector and, and two NHS organizations. So we're really starting to get some, some great evidence about how the technology works. Uh, and we're now looking to sort of deploy the artificial intelligence over the back end of this year. Do you, know what, do you know what's fascinating for me, mate? I mean, I'm not going to bore any people listening with sort of medical device regulations and stuff, but essentially, okay, the landscape of medical devices is changing. People are going to go through all this stuff. There's even more paperwork for people to do to, to make, especially software medical devices now and, and jump over those regulatory hoops and things and blah, blah, blah. But what I think is really not only interesting, fascinating, but also just really good is just the fact that you've got this to a point where you can give it to patients and actually it's AI being practically used in a way that, okay, you've called, you know, some of it your analog version where at the, ultimately a clinician is sat at the end, but at the, at the end of the day, you are essentially using AI in the real world, which I think is your point about the study, right? Being prospective. It's actually in the real world making decisions that you're then going back and looking at rather than doing it on historical data, which is, I think, the first study of its kind to do that, I think I read in the press. Absolutely. The first one to certainly to be powered. So by that, I mean, have enough data in it to, to be able to really rely on the, the conclusions. Yeah, it's an incredible milestone. I mean, you guys have clearly got like a like a real focus on kind of the research element and obviously the clinical credibility element. Because even I've seen you know bits and bobs of apps and stuff that can do this for consumers, but it it you know it doesn't it doesn't feel as kind of I, I don't know as I want to say credible, but I don't know what's your what's your feeling on the sort of competitive landscape and your focus? Yeah, I think uh, fr from our perspective. Uh, we have really tried from day one to be clinically focused and figure out where in the, the, the patient pathway where patients are getting cared for, they're getting assessed and they're getting cared for, where in that pathway uh, can we play to actually make it better? Um, and that, that sort of focus on being involved in the clinical pathway carries with it the burden of having the, the clinical evidence. And so they've been mm. two of the pillars behind, behind us as a company and, and really has driven a lot of the strategy that we've followed for the last eight years. And we, we did that for a couple of reasons. One, if you think about where money gets spent on healthcare, uh, it is by uh, government organizations or private payers uh, rather than, than people. And we think that the real 
value you can create is, is not trying to create a whole new market of self-paying people, which I think will happen and we'll, we'll, we'll be a part of it. But it's how do you sort of help refine and improve the economics of delivering healthcare now, given that that's a major crisis facing every single Western country and, and probably every country around the world is how to keep delivering top quality healthcare when costs are going up so much. And, and by focusing on those things and, and by having that as, as, as where we want to play, there are a couple of, a couple of things that became apparent to us. We needed it to be the highest quality service that you could possibly build. And I think that's what differentiates us from, from the competitors in the market. There are some great companies that we compete against, but we uh, hands down believe that our technology is, is significantly better than, than anyone else's out there. And we're open to any sorts of uh, sort of uh, competitive study and, and, uh, and tests on, on how our technology works because we've really spent such a significant amount of our time uh, working on mm. it. And I, I just wanted to, to say one other comment because I think this is really important for any innovators thinking about working in healthcare. Um, the, the, the regulations, and I'm not going to dive into the details of them either because um, <laughs> at some point when you get into the regulations as someone who's got an innovation, uh, innovative streak in you, you will want to put your head in your hands and cry uh, because the amount of work and the amount of process and the amount of uh, shift in your thinking about how do you accommodate innovation within these sort of heavy frameworks is incredible. But uh, to, when, you, when you start to unlock it, when you start to operate some of these, um, these systems, you look back and think, how could I actually have delivered a healthcare company without having all this incredible amount of checks and balances and, and documentation and processes in place because you're, you're playing around with people's lives and their health and you really need to make sure that, that you're doing it right. And the final thing I'll say is that as incredibly difficult as it looks and um, when you, you mentioned that uh, you were impressed that we've been able to do it, I, um, I was incredibly proud because I think the, the, the effort that the entire company has put in to join a company that they thought, ah, oh, this is an AI healthcare company. It's all about innovation. This is going to be really cool <laughs> to get into the company and realize that a lot of the work we have to do is figuring out how to innovate within process. They all lent into it. And we've got such an incredible group of people that have moved us in a, an incredible distance in a short space of time to, to put us in this position that we're now looking to try and, try and deploy this stuff. That's awesome, man. And so the, the, pro the product itself and the fact that it's out there in the real world now doing all this stuff, you mentioned you've got a private sector model, you've got an NHS model. I'm keen to hear who buys it, who uses it, and who does it help? Yeah, sure. So we started in the private sector. So I'll, I'll start there because it's a little bit simpler a world to, uh, to describe. Effectively, where we are getting the most traction is with insurance companies. And, and we've had a long running partnership with Vitality Health Insurance. Um, nice. we, we've got a huge amount of support from, from the company itself in terms of helping us uh, get started and get up and running um, from, a, from an experience and, and opportunity point of view. But um, the model there is effectively quite simple. Uh, Vitality, uh, a health insurer that effectively pays for what happens to you if you have to go to secondary care or into a hospital and they give you, uh, they underwrite you going to private hospitals and getting, getting faster treatments. But increasingly, like every other insurance company, they've been trying to focus on how to improve the, the primary care experience for their members as well, even though that's not typically what they've been involved in. 
So Vitality offered a, a remote and online GP service. And what became apparent really, really quickly is that an online GP service generates a lot of dermatology appointments for skin lesions because there's nothing else they can do for Yeah, them. safety netting, right? Exactly right. And, you know, remotely on a Skype conversation, there's not much you can do about a skin lesion. So, so we jumped in and said, well, hey, look, what we'll do is we'll... Um, offer a remote service where we send out a, a smartphone and a dermoscope to your patients. We'll get them to image the skin lesions and we'll be able to tell, tell you what needs to happen. Uh, and their customers love it. That's a, it's a really great service for them to be able to do it all remotely. Uh, and then the, the added benefit for them is that they, they cut down the number of secondary care appointments that they're paying for by about 50% um, from what Oof. they were doing before. <laughs> so there's a, a fairly nice sort of financial... It's nice thing. and neat, simple model, makes a load of sense, ideal. Yeah. Absolutely. And now if you, if you sort of fast forward to the NHS, the principle is exactly the same. Um, although patients are going to face-to-face -face GPs, there's still a huge opportunity to make the GP's decision more efficient um, by giving them additional information. And that's the, the service that we offer in the NHS. So an NHS GP would have one of our smartphones and one of our dermoscopes, and they would image the skin lesion for a patient. And we would help that GP understand whether it was a, a two-week weight referral, a non-urgent referral, an AK that they could treat, or a benign lesion that they didn't need to do anything about, and they could monitor or, or speak to the patient about other options. And uh, th that's effectively the, the, the principle there. The challenge when it comes to the NHS is who is it that, that pays for it and who is it that benefits from it? And I think that is one of the biggest, biggest challenges that um, innovators face with in, in NHS. So clearly, we're taking cost out of the system by reduced dermatology uh, appointments. The people who pay for those dermatology outpatient appointments is generally the clinical commissioning groups. And they're mm. one of our key, key targets to, to sell into. The challenge with that is that some of them uh, um, clinical commissioning groups are in block contracts with the hospital. So it doesn't really matter how many patients they send through, they're still paying the same amount. And so for us to come in and offer an additive cost, even if it's reducing the patient volumes, doesn't necessarily deliver any value or can actually be the opposite to a CCG. So having yeah. to unlock that value has been one of, the, one of the other challenges. But interestingly for us, what, what we've also seen and what's, what's started to happen more and more recently is that the trust themselves have come to us and said, look, we've got this massive problem. We've got just too many patients coming. We don't have enough dermatologists. We can't fill our empty posts. We're running you know, waiting list clearance initiatives, which are costing us huge amounts of money. Um, how can we resolve this, this volume problem? where there's no financial incentive for them, it's about workforce management. And so they're trying to get us involved in speaking to the clinical commissioning groups about trying to find how we can reduce those, those sort of volumes coming in, even though they're not necessarily the, the financial beneficiaries of it. It's quite interesting. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense then as to why your recent study is of so much importance, because essentially this, what the study has said and I have read it. <laughs> it's not just it. I have read it because what the study basically said was that by using the, your, your derm product, you can essentially use it in primary care and it's as sensitive and specific as a dermatology specialist. And with everything that you've done recently, you can actually now deploy this in healthcare and that's okay. Absolutely right. We're um, incredibly proud about it. So the right to play is going through the regulatory pathway. And that's, you know, can I legally do this? The ability to actually do what we want to do is, was completely dependent on proving that the AI could actually do what we said it could do. Yeah. And proving it in a way that you can interrogate, you can look at the statistics and you can understand that 
Um, there's no sort of study design that made life easier for us. We are literally looking at real patients in exactly the same way that a dermatologist would in seven different sites across the country, led by the Royal Free, Oxford University Hospital involved, Bristol, Royal Devon and Exeter, Stoke, and a couple in London. You know, it, it's, it's an incredible bit of work. And, you know, it, it, from my perspective, it's not just the missing piece of the puzzle for us at Skin Analytics. It's one of the first uh, pieces of the puzzle to show that AI isn't just hype in the newspapers, but is actually going to make a difference in the healthcare. Mm. And that's always been the challenge, you know, it's been converting. I mean, we've heard it in AI for, for a long time. We've heard it in blockchain recently. And my challenge has always just been showing me where it's solving a problem. And before now, it's just been selling on hype, right? But I think with stuff like you're doing, actually deploying it to patients in a sensible way, research-led, clinically focused, you know, all that sort of stuff, we can actually start seeing some benefits. And yes, as you say, you know, you've plugged in all the safety mechanisms of, of people at the back end and analog systems and stuff. But now it seems like you, you've, you've done a lot of the work in proving that this is genuinely valuable, particularly in primary care. And like even, even like on an anecdotal basis, you know, I'm thinking of myself, you know, sat in, sat in a GP practice with a clinic, which I did as an F2, and you know seeing skin lesions that you're just a bit like mm, it could be so i'm just going to refer it could be so i'm just going to refer if you can add an extra layer in that you can be you know even when i'm almost certain that it's not but because i'm junior i just want to refer you can remove that and add in such a layer of of defensibility and it would you know curb your anxiety as a clinician so much just knowing that you've got this extra layer that you can stick in the notes that oh and I've done this thing, which is as sensitive and specific as a dermatologist. And I think it will just take some time to gain that trust in the system, I suppose, and actually just to work it through in, in quite a lot of human factors, ways of um, actually fitting the, the process in to allow clinicians to trust it. Yeah, you know, and I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. We were speaking about this um, uh, briefly the other day, and you used a phrase that I really liked, is that the AI really is just another member of the team. Yeah. It's another, another player involved in helping make the right decisions for patients. And, and you know, some, some people uh, talk about AI as, as sort of threatening clinicians or, or having an impact on, on what clinicians do. And it will have an impact on what clinicians do, but I'm, I'm expecting that to be a hugely positive impact where, you know, we use artificial intelligence to help with identifying disease or identifying trends but then we use all the clinicians' experience and training with what they're really good at, which is working with these really complex problems of what do I do for this patient? You know, what's the best outcome for this patient? If I've got an 85-year-old person sitting in front of me with a BCC, do I really want to do a huge invasive uh, operation to cut that out of them? Is that going to give them the best quality of life and, and mm. be able to have those complex discussions with the patients to, to get the best outcomes? Yeah, exactly the role of AI. Just part of the team. A, re a super smart member, but an, and a member that's got a really long memory. But at the end of the day, just another member of the team. And I think that's definitely the way it should be approached. And I think I think we are reaching a new paradigm with it where that is the case. I think when, when, when we were at the start of the hype curve, I think there was a lot of clinician pushback. Whereas I think now that the conversation's moved on and I think we are more mature to it and we can, we can all appreciate that it has a role to play as part of the team. I think that is a, a, a crucial bit it's not just clinicians who are more mature to it you know if if you if you think about it um you know as i said we're one of the earliest companies to jump in here we, we started in 2012 
And what we know about artificial intelligence is changing and building every single day. And, you know, we're now mature enough to be able to have these conversations um, with, with clinicians in a way that, that we can actually have a dialogue that they understand us and we understand them. Yeah, and we, that's a good point. You know, it, you, so it's, it's incredibly important to realize that the whole industry is growing up. And I guess the final point to that is, is that, um, and one of the reasons why we're so excited about this study is that, you know, we and, and a couple other companies like Kira Medical are really trying to sort of push forward this sort of ethical and responsible use of artificial intelligence in healthcare where you, you have clinicians demand the highest level of clinical evidence and then we get it and then we show them how, how we can, you know, prove that the technology mm. does what we said it can. And it's now that all that's starting to come in that I think clinicians are starting to go, okay, well, now I can trust and let's figure out what cool things we can do with it. Yeah, we, it, it's just so important to be evidence-based and, and clinical first, right? <laughs> it, it just, it, the, the, yeah, the evidence for that is just so obvious. And you guys are you guys are raising money soon, right? That's right. That's right. We've um, we've gone through all the sort of building blocks, testing, proving out the assumptions around the business model about the technology. We've gathered the evidence. We've got the medical device. <laughs> you've covered some horrendous ground. I'm, I must admit, you've, <laughs> you've done a lot of hard work. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And we're just about now putting together, um, putting together the documents for, for our Series A, which we'll raise towards the end of the year, start of next year. And we've got some really interesting investors that we're talking to that, that have been following us for a while. And, and uh, increasingly, there's a lot more interest in this space. So um, I, just while I've got the chance, if anyone's listening to this and is, is looking to put uh, investments into AI and healthcare, then you certainly should get in touch. Awesome. We definitely do have investors listen and we definitely have had people be contacted from coming on that have gone on to get investment. So I'm sure there'll be a couple of people in touch, Neil. So dude, I mean, it's been a pleasure having you on. I mean, I, I love chatting to you and, and seeing how far you've come every time we speak. Um, I think what you're doing is awesome. I love the fact that you're evidence-based. I love the fact that you're actually focused on solving problems and you know, you've brought that right from your background up until what you're doing now. I think really excited to see where you guys go. And um, I don't think I'll have any trouble getting that series money in from the traction that you've had so far uh so dude the way that we end these podcasts is um i hand back over to you to summarize a little bit about yourself a little bit about the company and yeah just close us out with any other asks that you've got of our audience so take it away well uh, firstly james i wanted to say thank you to you i enjoyed the conversation and and uh, also we've been talking for a number of years and i've learned a huge amount from you over those years so very uh, kind sir thank you chance and uh, yeah so just to summarize who i am my name's neil i am um, i'm a problem solver who uh, who fell into a variety of different career paths before figuring out that what i loved is entrepreneurship i started skin analytics uh, in 2012 and uh, have been very fortunate to learn on a very steep curve about healthcare uh, at the right time when digital is coming in to really change the way it's going to be done. Um, and I, uh, I would love to hear from anyone who's involved in delivering care uh, for patients around dermatology, whether that be a CCG, whether that be a trust, uh, or whether that be an interested investor who, who wants to help fund this new wave of AI innovation awesome and if people want to get in touch with you or the company how can they find you uh easily enough i'm neil at skin analytics all one word dot co dot uk and uh, i'm very good at getting back to anyone who wants to get in touch love to hear from you awesome thanks a lot neil cheers james all the best hey everybody and thanks for listening to this week's episode and making it all the way to the end if you enjoyed it remember to subscribe rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.